Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my inexplicably good friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we attempt to resolve long-festering relationship issues between the multi-level modeling and structural equation modeling approaches to growth curve analysis. Along the way, we also discuss first dates, jets and sharks, cubs and cardinals, Montagues and Capulets, Tsingtao Beer, Thunderdome, Stupid Lizard Tricks, Pressure Math, Dirty Secrets, Selfishness, and National Haiku Day. We hope you enjoy today's episode. As listeners are probably aware, there's a certain amount of lag time that happens between when we record and when the episode actually drops. It's anywhere from <laughs> three days. A couple of days, I was <laughs> going to say. <laughs> It can be 72 hours, it can be 96 hours. (laughs) We're not last minute kinds of guys. So a couple of days ago was Valentine's Day. And I have to admit that it reminded me of our first date. Do you remember that, Patrick? Oh, yeah, I remember that it reminded you of our first date. (laughs) I don't want to recount the story here now, because I actually told the story during last year's uh, St. Patrick's Day episode, What do you think? Could we play that again? No. (laughs) You know my rule about listening to anything we've done before. No, don't, don't, don't touch. The story is the first time you and I met. You cold called me with an email and you said something like, I'm going to be up in DC. You want to grab dinner or something? We made arrangements trying to figure out what both of us liked and Mm -hmm. we just grabbed an Indian dinner. In fact, I think we drove around and just found a strip mall Indian place. We're in there. We order lots of food. It is entirely possible that there was beer involved. It's entirely possible that you can get loud from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) So there were times during dinner where we were laughing and laughing. And you even said at one point, oh my God, we're going to get thrown out. We found out, you know, we had so much in common and it was it was just a, a wonderful dinner. Finally, toward the end of the meal, a customer from one of the other tables comes up to our table and you had the absolute most sheepish look on your face and we just know we're been offensive or loud or all of the above. And she says, I am so sorry to be this person. And then she looks at us and she goes, Okay, so if I have data at four time points, I'm trying to understand, Do I should I approach it from a multi-level perspective? Should I approach it from a latent growth modeling perspective? And your face just lit up like, oh, we're not, we're not busted. And then you had this big grin and you, and you just said to me, you go, you want to take this one or should I? You know? Are you happy? That wasn't so bad, was it? Are you happy? <laughs> yes, and that's all that matters. <laughs> We have talked about this before. (laughs) Dr. Michelle has told me that it's not just about you. You know what my goal is for this Valentine's Day, Patrick? That we just keep it to a small argument, okay? (laughs) You want to have a low-key Valentine's this time (laughs) where you only throw a minor fit? Uh, Hang on, I'm texting Dr. Michelle. (laughs) We were talking about MLM and SEM. I didn't. I don't even have a guess as how long ago that was. 15, yeah, 20 years ago. Around fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. Around fifteen years ago. Okay, let me ask you this: Have we resolved that 
even in the slightest. Whether or not methodological progress has been made is not the same thing as whether or not people's behavior is being changed in any way. So it seems like something maybe worth talking about in a bit more detail. One thing that's maddening is you get pretty rapidly into the Montagues and the Capulets and <laughs> the Jets and the Sharks and... <laughs> Stop, stop. Sorry. It drives me a little crazy because you very much get into these great rivalries in history, right? You got the Cubs and the Cardinals, if we're really going to talk serious rivalries. Because you American leaguers out there, yeah, we don't Mm -hmm. care because your pitcher doesn't bat. (laughs) And that's a travesty, right? (laughs) It's a travesty. I don't know if I've told you, but I have like 15 pages of grievances that I'm starting to write for the next holiday episode. And (laughs) I'm rank ordering them. I have them cross-referenced on content and personal level. And one of these is we all have the same data matrix. Mm -hmm. And the notion that your model can somehow extract something from that data matrix that my model could never extract, it just drives me crazy. These are different approaches to the same data that allow certainly different kinds of insights, but that one is magically better than the other is just silly and preposterous. And yet, before we get into an argument, how about if you give us an overview, like a a 27,000-foot overview of how, why don't you pick MLM, uh, how a multi-level approach to growth is handled. Can you do that? Once you're a jet, you're always a jet. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. (laughs) All right, let's think broadly about the multi-level model for a moment in the hierarchically nested data. So mm-hmm. grad students out there, you have a $1.50 research budget to do your entire dissertation. Your mom works for the public schools. She knows a teacher who will let you into her classroom to collect data on one class from one set of kids. And so you're able to go in and you're studying what? Grit. I love grit. All right. I hate, I hate, I hate the pop science part of grit, but there's absolutely something there. Developmentalists roll their eyes and says, yeah, it's called executive functioning. We've been doing this for decades, but it is perseverance. It's dedication. It's overcoming adversity. It's frustration tolerance. It's planfulness, all of this. All right. So we got grit and we're interested in how that relates to math achievement. You've got your $1.50, you go in, and you gather data, and you get, whatever, 30 kids. Each one has some measure of grit. You have a math achievement test, and you regress math on grit. And you look at some positive relation, and you see that, on average, kids who have higher levels of grit tend to score higher in math ability. That's what your $1.50 buys you. Well, Mm -hmm. there's only one intercept and slope for that relation because you only have one class. Well, then you go on postdoc, you get a K award, you go back into the schools, and I don't know, now you get 30 classrooms. 
All right, and so you still have the kids nested within class. You're still assessing kid grit and math. But now picture that one classroom you had that had an intercept and a slope that summarized that relation. Well, now you have conceptually 30 of those. Mm -hmm. There is a regression of math on grit in class one, in class two, and in class three. And the multi-level model is exceptionally well-designed where you can look at the mean relation between grit and math achievement and importantly the class-to-class variability you can look at kid predictors you can look at teacher predictors so if grit is a good thing for math ability you can say what kind of teacher fosters grit so that the kids are better able to persevere through these math problems all right in and out, nobody gets hurt. Enter Bryken Roudenbush back in the late 80s. There's been decades of work of trying to say, well, how do we study repeated measures over time? Bryken Roudenbush have a paper in 87, Psych Bowl, mm-hmm. I think it is, and absolutely other people have contributed to this field, but that was really the first ball hit into play, and they said, dang. <laughs> We got this whole architecture for kids within classroom to handle dependent data. What if we just backed up and said we can have repeated measures within kid? Now go back to that $1.50. Instead of having one class, you have one kid. And instead of having a single assessment of math ability, you have a repeated assessment of math ability. Mm -hmm. And you can use those repeated assessments to get some estimate of the kid's initial value on math and the kid's rate of change over time on math. It's a trajectory. But you don't care about that one kid, right? Maybe he's nice and you want to know more about Melissa. Okay, fine. Everybody likes Melissa. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about Melissa to the extent to which we can gather a bunch of kids who are similar to Melissa and try to gain some sense of how do they represent some population of interest. So instead of one kid, let's extend it to 30 kids just to stay Mm -hmm. parallel with the multi-level example I gave earlier. Now we have repeated measures nested within kid and we have multiple kids. Well, now your regression is math ability on time. Every kid has a starting point. Every kid has a rate of change. You can look at what is the average starting point of the trajectory of math ability at the beginning of the school year. What is the average rate of change? You can look at what is kid-to-kid variability in the starting point and rate of change. And then you can ask yourself, well, if some kids are starting higher and increasing more rapidly, what are characteristics of the child that might govern those trajectory? Are there between-person characteristics of the kid that predicts where they start, where they go, and so on? So in a nutshell, that's the multi-level growth model. They take the repeated assessments as nested within individual, and you build a level one model that is within person. You build a level two model that is between person, and you jointly describe how these repeated measures unfold over time, both within and between individual. I heard what you said about the multi-level model approach to growth, and I feel that there's another way to think about growth. Would that be okay with you if I mentioned that? Oh, please. As if my opinion has any bearing in any of this, go ahead. Tell me how I was wrong. You know, there's a difference between listening and waiting to talk. And I think you only wait to talk, Patrick. I don't think you really listen. (laughs) You know that line way too well. (laughs) That is one approach to growth. 
And another approach is the structural equation modeling approach, which we often call latent growth modeling, latent growth curve modeling. But I think that the name goes back and forth between the two different traditions, between the multi-level modeling tradition and the structural equation modeling tradition. The structural equation modeling approach to growth is based on trickery. I think. You have this framework that can accommodate measured variables and latent variables, and you might think, well, what the heck does that have to do with growth? Well, the method that you describe, one way I often think about it is that you have data in long format. The idea that each kid might have multiple lines worth of data and the way that I think about the structural equation modeling approach is more like the data being in wide format, where you think about each individual being measured at multiple points in time, and the data just sort of expand from left to right with each new variable that is added. In other words, each new time point's worth of data. Well, we are all familiar with confirmatory factor analysis. We should all be familiar. We had an episode on it, for God's sake. You mean the one where we said confirmatory factor analysis <laughs> isn't confirmatory? Yeah, so super that's, helpful. That's, that's the one. In confirmatory factor analysis, the way that it is typically structured, variables load on specific factors, the factors that they were often designed to serve as indicators of. And sometimes you have variables that load on multiple factors, but not all that often. And so we have each factor with the indicators of that particular factor. Growth modeling takes advantage of that particular framework, first and foremost, by thinking about growth as a latent process, a process that we don't directly observe. So we could imagine that people's growth, for simplicity, is characterized by some latent starting point, some latent amount at an initial time point, as well as some latent trajectory, as though these are processes that are internal to a particular individual and differing across individuals. With that idea in mind, then what we have to do is imagine how those would link to the measured variables that we have. The trick is to think about time as the values associated with each loading. So let's think about time one, the very first time point at which we have data on math ability. Where each kid starts at time one can be thought of as being a function of some underlying latent amount of math ability that they have, as well as some error. But growth hasn't taken place from that time point yet. So we just have a path coming in from some underlying latent factor that represents an initial amount. When we get to the next time point though, we can think of the amount that each kid has as containing whatever they started with from the intercept, that initial amount, plus some amount that they have grown. So now a latent slope factor is now contributing one unit because you have grown one unit of time. If we assume that all of the measures for now are taken at equal intervals, then with each new time point, you can imagine that you have an amount that is a function of where you started from that intercept factor and some number of units of the slope factor because you have grown that many times. But the idea here is very, very clever. We are taking a confirmatory factor analysis framework. We are allowing all of our longitudinal measures to load on factors that represent a growth process. And for now, allowing them to load in ways that we hard code so that those factors represent some initial amount or other reference time point, as well as change. So it's all about just reparameterizing the confirmatory factor analysis model. 
I view Meredith and TSAC as the quote-unquote inventor of the latent curve model. So they have a conference paper, and then they formalize that in maybe 91, 90 or 91 Hmm. in Psychometrica. I think what you just described is one of the most clever sleight Mm -hmm. of hands in really all of the SEM. It's not the only clever one, but it is one of the top three. It really is amazing. I like how you differentiate long and wide because that's precisely what it is. In the multi-level, when you have repeated measures nested within individual, you have one line of data for each person at each time point. And the reason is, is precisely why you would have it that way with nested kids in classroom. You have classroom one, kid one, class one, kid two, class one, kid three. Here you have kid one, time one, kid one, time two, kid one, time three. The huge point of confusion, and we'll explore this in a moment, is in that framework, there is a physical variable in the data file representing time that is a predictor in the multi-level. But Meredith and TSAC flip that on its side. So now it's a standard N by P data matrix where there's one line of data for every person, but every column is a repeated measure. And there is no measure of time in the data file because Bill Meredith said, I'm going to code the numerical time in the factor loading. Hmm. And if we do uh, an episode of top all time creative sleight of hands in analytics, that one's in the top three. Absolutely. Crazy clever. This is another one of those things where it is absolutely understandable how people get confused in this. Mm-hmm. because these are radically different approaches to modeling individual variability and starting point and rate of change over time. One that is regression-based, it has long format, it has an actual variable in the data file that has time. You have another that is wide format, There is no variable of time. There are multiple indicators on a latent factor where the latent variables represent these unobserved trajectories. Mm -hmm. They couldn't be more different from one another. And yet, across a broad swath of applications, you ready for a band name I would go see? (laughs) Numerical isomorphism (laughs) at the cat's cradle. They are numerically isomorphic. They are the same thing Mm -hmm. in every way for a class of models, not for all of them. Parameter estimates, standard errors, log likelihoods, critical ratios, p-values. Absolutely, there are differences at the edges. And absolutely, each one has entryway into certain things that the other one may not But when you define the same underlying growth model that are very, very common situations that we would have, they are Mm -hmm. identical. And I find it verging on magical. In fact, it seems like a lot of the differentiation comes from the way people think about it. The language in the multi-level modeling kind of world includes things like hierarchical linear modeling and random coefficient models and random effects, all of that, which it's all saying the same thing using different language, but it's also a way of thinking about the data. And in the structural equation modeling approach to growth, it is thinking about it very, very differently. I totally agree that these things are, what would you say, numerically isomorphic? Yes. 
excellent at Cat's Cradle. That's a beautiful thing. And I would say maybe a tribute to the genius of Meredith and Tisak to some extent about how they could completely flip things on its side and still retain the same information. And yet there are some distinctions between these methods, right? In terms of their capabilities, in terms of what one method might be able to do better than the other method. Some people I have found are staunch defenders of a particular method over another. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. I'm not generally one of those kinds of people. I can see the merits of each, but it might be nice if we could at least highlight for people as I think we did briefly at the Indian restaurant 15 years ago. <laughs> Highlight a little bit about what you get with one and, and don't get with the other. The only difference now is it's not an argument fueled by Tsing Tao beer. <laughs> Maybe it will be less animated, but more accurate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have and always have had a very low tolerance for horse races for Montagues and the Capulets. Because I hate hell, all Montagues and the Capulets! Or I'll date myself a little bit for Beyond Thunderdome. Welcome to another edition of Thunderdome! These are different insights into the same data. Now again, that's not to say that we can't design studies that would leverage certain strengths in a way that the other would not. If we have a given data file and a given set of questions, these are different ways of looking at these data. And again, the similarities far outweigh the dissimilarities, I think. A lot of this is not only discipline-specific, but almost Mm software-specific. There was software designed for multi-level modeling. There was software designed for structural equation modeling. There was a cottage industry that I have to admit I contributed a little bit to myself of saying, I can make your model do this that my model does. And somebody else says, well, I can trick your model into doing what my model does, but those are software limitations. Mm -hmm. As software packages continue to grow and evolve, that boundary becomes more and more porous where it's maybe less the statistical model and more how is the likelihood written in a particular software package, and that's actually the rate-limiting step that separates one model from the other. Yeah, Chris Preacher and I used to email each other back and forth with what we called stupid list rail tricks, when we would try to find different ways of parameterizing particular types of models in ways that hadn't really been done before, or at least weren't obvious. And it is a cottage industry. It's fun. It's fun to find ways to try to trick a model to be able to do things that you could either do in another software format or another analytical approach or things that you really couldn't do altogether. So I like it. I am unapologetic about thinking that that's actually a useful cottage industry. It opens things up for people to be able to do. But there are some things that an MLM approach I think can probably handle a little bit better than an SEM approach to growth. Can I ask you to unpack those at all? Oh, boy. All right. I agree with you on there are beneficial aspects of that cottage industry to a point. And I can hold myself up Mm -hmm. to this mirror as well, as I have a paper from a number of years ago titled something like, have multi-level models been SEMs all along or something? 
And I got to tell you, I did like 500 hours of work to show that you could do in an SEM what you could do in four lines of proc mixed Mm -hmm. for a (laughs) multi-level model. And one would look back and question whether that was an ideal use of my time. And it was a parlor trick. Mm -hmm. But it helped me understand that a latent variable in SEM world is a random effect in the MLM. And that a factor mean in the SEM world is a fixed effect in the MLM. There's a selfish outcome for me of trying to better understand what's happening at the level of the likelihood. I think there's a purpose for these, but also not to declare a Thunderdome winner. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Because that, to me, is a fool's errand. And I actually think we set ourselves back as a science if we start having Secretariat races Seattle slew and who's going to win. Mm-hmm. These are different approaches to the same data. So let's start briefly with where do they overlap. So pretty standard growth models if we think about panel-like data, right? So we have a set of repeated measures. We can have missing data. Mm-hmm. We can have time-invariant covariates. We can have time-varying covariates. We can have different kinds of polynomials for growth, a line, a quadratic, a cubic. But for a huge class of models, these are identical in every way, shape, or form. Part of it, as you alluded to, is how do you think about the problem? Do you mm-hmm. think about there's something we believe to exist, but we don't directly observe that, and we want to use what we did observe to infer characteristics of what we didn't? Well, that's very natural to the confirmatory factor model. What if you think about, well, there are strengths of relationships that are characterized by means and variances and covariances that vary over higher levels? Well, that's very natural to a multi-level. Even if they're numerically isomorphic, conceptually, maybe you just have a comfort zone of one over the other. It's hard to make a laundry list of things that MLM can do, but that the SEM can't. I can talk about a couple of things that I think about, Mm -hmm. and I'll reflect back on you because the SEM then can address various ways of doing these. There are two big ones for me is the MLM is built from the ground up to naturally expand to higher levels of nesting. So the whole point of Roudenbush and Bright is, let's say you're interested in the relation between grit and math achievement, and you're doing a longitudinal study. The dependent variable is just one math score. If we move that to repeated measures within kids, conceptually now, that dependent variable is not a single math score. It's a trajectory of math ability throughout the school year. So now you have a starting point per child and you have a rate of change. So some kids are showing up in the fall with higher versus lower math scores. So my girls still joke about this. We used to do when they were younger at their insistence. So nobody called Child Protective (laughs) Services, please, is this was at their request. We had a Mm -hmm. thing called pressure math. And I would sit when they were very young and I would say, 2 plus 8 minus 6 times 2 plus 3. And I would pause, and then I would grab them by the front of their shirt, 
and shake them and say, what is it? What's the answer? And I would hold them by their legs upside down. And I would uh-huh. say, come on, two plus three minus eight times two over whatever it was. One, I told them, never tell uh-huh. your teacher about uh-huh. pressure math. Uh-huh. And second, does pressure math in some way prepare you in a way when you go to school in the fall that not pressure math does not? other than the obvious PTSD from being held by your feet. (laughs) Instead of having a single value, there's a starting point and then individual variability rate of change over time. The multi-level model is built for saying, let's have repeated measures nested within child to get an estimate of these beautiful continuous trajectories, but then let's have children nested within classroom, Mm -hmm. where now instead of a single time point score, we can look at child-to-child variability at the rate in which they improve in math ability over time and to see can we map child level predictors can we map teacher level predictors so now the question expands to what are predictors of rate of improvement in math over time so a three level model and heck go ahead and put teacher within school And we can Mm -hmm. look at principal-level characteristics. So imagine this is a four-level model. Repeated measures nested within students, student nested within classroom, classroom nested within school. And we can look at predictors at every level. We can look at across-level predictors. We can disaggregate within and between person effect, within and between class effects, within and between school effects. It's Mm -hmm. amazing. So the first one I would say is it rolls up to these higher levels of nesting. The second, it is absolutely designed and built to handle high-density repeated measures. Yeah. Intensive longitudinal design, sparse data. So you're doing a diary data or ecological moment assessments, EMA data, that instead of having a measure at grade six, grade seven, grade eight, grade nine, as you would in a panel kind of thing, you have Monday at 11.18 a.m., 5.32 p.m., Tuesday at 6.59 a.m. You have sparse data, lots of repeated measures, and it handles that extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. And hand-in-hand hand with that is it's really nicely designed for then more complicated level one error structures. If you go into various software packages, I'm a proc mixed guy in SAS, they have 20 or 30 level one error structures that you can use in these high density repeated measures. AR1, AR2, spatial power, toplets, banded toplets. So those are the two, I would say, higher levels of nesting and intensive longitudinal data. Now, there are others I can add, but those are the big two. A couple that I would add that are no doubt in the forefront of your mind, and I'll get your reaction to it. One, in the multi-level framework, I think you generally have more flexibility with regard to time. I mean, I can, you can very easily imagine a design where no one is measured at the exact same time. And once time is in there as a variable, which it is explicitly in the multi-level model, then it seems easier to handle. Is that fair or is that... Oh, that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. One of the limitations of the SEM is in the standard latent curve model... If you have a time point, it has to be represented by a manifest variable that's an indicator on the latent factor. I think the notion in multi-level modeling of having time as a predictor is actually conceptually much more consistent with how we think about time on a continuum. 
yep. is there's continuous time and we're just sampling time around that. And it could be for me here and here and here and here. And for you, it could be there and there mm-hmm. and there and there. And no two people have to have the same values of time in the entire data file. Yeah, And I think that's just a really natural way of thinking about sampling around this continuous timeline, where in the SEM, you're restricted to the factor loading matrix that is a huge advantage in some ways, but is limiting in others. The other one that comes to mind, and I don't know how much this still holds, but I think about uh, differences in estimators that are used in the two worlds. And Given the historical connection of MLM to regression and its expansion into maximum likelihood, but eventually into, I think, restricted maximum likelihood, it feels like it might be a little bit more flexible, a little more tolerant when it comes to sample size. I see it as six of one, half a dozen of the others, is the MLM, I believe, has better options for small n. It has restricted maximum likelihood. It has a thing called Kenward Rogers. Mm-hmm. Uh, degrees of freedom and adjusted test statistics, and that works really well. It does not have a parallel for non-normal distributions. To my knowledge, in off-the-shelf programs, there's actually no estimator that is equivalent to SEM's robust ML. And in that spirit, since I came to bury MLM not to praise it... One of the things that I like about the structural equation modeling framework to growth is our ability to make some sort of comment about fit, right? I feel like in the MLM framework, you're riding on theory. You're not able to formally assess certain aspects of the growth model, whether we're talking about globally in terms of fit or locally. You can do things like tests of quadratic and cubic kinds of components that you add, but I feel like you're sort of limited in the MLM framework with regard to fit. Exactly. Although I would have to say I have a love-hate relationship with that. So I grew up in the SEM world. I was hardwired with chi-square, TLI, CFI, IFI, RMSCA. I came late to the MLM world and I was very frustrated by the lack of those omnibus fit measures until I started to become increasingly disenchanted with their behavior in the SEM. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And then I kind of like not having omnibus fit measures in the MLM. You have to pay more attention to likelihood ratio tests of comparative models that in the SEM, you're like, woohoo, my RMSEA is 0.04999. I'm going to stop here. And maybe that's not great. One of the advantages of SEM is we have omnibus measures of fit. And one of the biggest disadvantages is we have omnibus measures of fit. All things said, having it versus not having it, I would choose having it to the extent that it provides some information. You know what I miss more than omnibus that's directly related are modification indices. Oh, yeah. They're dangerous little bastards, but (laughs) you come to like them with time. They're little mini diagnostics that can be kind of informative. And there's no analog to that in the MLM world, right? Exactly. Could there be? Another day, another discussion. Yeah, that would be kind of interesting to explore. I also like SEM's ability to handle multiple variables at the same time. And I don't know if there's a clever analog to that in the MLM world, but I think of a lot of aspects of growth 
as not just tracking one particular variable, but often tracking whether it's the time-by-time interplay between two variables or just the overall relation among the growth, I'll say factors because I'm in that mindset, the relations among the growth factors from several different outcomes. So in the MLM world, are there ways to handle multiple outcomes simultaneously? Yes. You work hard and (laughs) it's not always what you want. As with usual, our discussions were kind of bouncing all over Hell's Half Acre. I think one of the biggest limitations to the MLM is handling multivariate outcomes, just as you're describing. Mm -hmm. At the level of the trajectories, the MLM is exceedingly well-suited in the ways that we've described, Mm -hmm. primarily for a single outcome variable. So you're looking at trajectories of math achievement. You can have child-level predictors, which are time-invariant covariates and end up in the level two equation, you can bring in time varying covariates at the level one, where Mm -hmm. you could look at time specific or lagged measures of grit. Does your grit in a given year significantly predict math ability above and beyond the underlying trajectory? You can indeed do a multivariate growth model in SEM. And at least in my eyes, the guy who cracked the code on this was Bud McCallum. Mm -hmm. He has a paper in multivariate behavioral research in nine. 97 with colleagues, and I apologize to the colleagues, I'm forgetting who that is, but McCallum shows the isomorphism between a multivariate LCM uh, with three outcomes, actually, and then a brilliant trick for how to get that into the MLM. And the way the likelihood is set up in the MLM, it's a conditional likelihood, and you really are allowed only a single dependent variable. And what Bud figured out, he publishes under Robert, but goes by Bud, you can build a synthesized vector for your dependent variable where you stack one set of repeated measures on top of the other. So imagine Mm. you had your set of repeated measures for math and underneath it is a set of repeated measures for grit. All right, so you have this synthesized vector Z that he called Mm. it. And then you build these dummy codes in that act Mm -hmm. as toggles that bring Y in and out when you need it and Z in and out when you need it. And it was absolutely clever and brilliant. I actually wrote a chapter myself where I extended that to three level Mm. models. And I give an example where time is nested within soldier and soldier is nested within squad and looking at trajectories of trust and trajectories trajectories of integrity. Hmm. You can absolutely do it, and it is beautiful and elegant. But here's the problem, and maybe this is another, let's jump over to that acre in hell, if that's hell's half acre. I don't know why it's half an acre and not a full acre. I don't know. The current level of knowledge is your multivariate models stop there. If you want to look at how does time one math predict time two grit, and time one grit predict time two math in the presence of those trajectories, the multi-level model is not able to do that. When in the whiteboard space of the SEM, yeah, go Mm -hmm. nuts. You can draw any path in there you want. Right, so you're referring to the structured residuals. Or any of its variant, latent change score model, the alt model, the LCMSR, wherever you want to build growth at the level of the trajectory and somehow work in time-lagged effects, Mm -hmm. the MLM does not allow for that. Another variation on multivariate, and this one is just right up SEM's alley, and that is when you have multiple measures of the same construct and you don't think about growth specifically 
in a particular measured outcome, and you don't think about the concurrent growth in multiple outcomes, but rather you think about growth in the latent variable that is indicated by those multiple variables. So if we took math ability and we had multiple measures of math ability, we can use those as indicators of a latent construct and then build a second order growth structure onto that first order measurement model across time, sometimes called a curve of factors model. The idea that you're accommodating measurement error and targeting growth in the actual construct, I think, is very attractive. And measurement error is not something I think that the MLM world is really well suited to handle. I couldn't agree more. What you get for the e-ticket at Disney World is not only getting to ride Space Mountain, but Mm -hmm. you get access to the entire SEM. So you have multiple indicator latent factors, just as you're describing. Those can be Mm -hmm. Y-side, so you could have multiple indicators of growth. But one of the big limitations of the MLM and the SEM, for that matter, if using manifest variables, is any manifest variable you assume to be measured without error. Mm-hmm. And if you have time invariant covariates in the MLM, those enter as manifest variables and you assume those to be error free. In principle, you could bring those in as multiple indicator latent factors in the SEM as predictors of the intercept and slope. Mm-hmm. But you're hitting the nail on the head is just think about regression versus SEM and our prior discussion on that. And many, many, many of the advantages of the SEM are the same. You write it out on the whiteboard, connect the variables in the way that you want. You get these mm-hmm. fit indices, you get modification indices, you get multiple indicator latent factors, all the goodies that the SEM give you, they offer in the latent curve model as well. What about missing data? Think about the full information world as being nicely developed in the SEM framework. How are missing data dealt with in the MLM? My understanding is almost the same as in the SEM. Mm -hmm. You make an assumption of missing at random, MAR, and that subsumes Mm -hmm. MCAR. There is a dirty little secret Mm -hmm. about the MLM, though. Do tell. I won't tell anybody if you don't tell anybody. Okay, what is it? The missing data applies to the Y side part of the model, not Mm -hmm. the X side part of the model. So if you have a time-invariant covariate, a characteristic of the individual, if you have a time-varying covariate, so some Mm -hmm. predictor that varies over time that is missing, it's list-wise deleted. Oof. I am seeing more and more where people are saying, well, we had extensive missing data, but multi-level models handles it. You remember my grievance about Mm Vimal doesn't handle anything. Now, some Mm -hmm. really nice work has been done on multiple imputation, right? There are ways that you can impute Mm -hmm. that, but there's a complexity in the architecture of that in ways we don't need to talk about now. It is much more elegantly handled in the SEM because the SEM is typically built on a joint likelihood that allows for missing data on X or Y side, where MLM is built on the conditional likelihood that requires complete data on X side. If you are presented some data or you have gathered the data yourself and they're longitudinal data and you have every intention of trying to model growth aspects in this data, what's your first go-to? SEM. Really? Always. Is that just because you were initially raised in an SEM tradition? Two reasons. That, Mm -hmm. you drank Coke because your dad drank Coke, right? (laughs) I mean, there's there's huge intergenerational transmission. (laughs) 
I don't think I would be addicted to World War II books if my dad didn't come over in front of the fire on a winter night and show me some pictures of D-Day. Mm-hmm. Part of it is I was born and bred in an SEM framework, and I think in that way. But mm-hmm. also, it's just a good starting point for me because I am able to parameterize the models in the way that I want. I'm able to look at these omnibus test statistics. I'm able to look at the modification indices. But I got to tell you, having said that, I will move to the MLM in a heartbeat if there's something that I want to do there that I'm not able to do in the SEM. So let's imagine that I'm forcing you to stay in the SEM world for just a minute. Someone has data at more than two levels, right? So they've got kids within classrooms, but then they want to have classrooms nested within schools. And again, you're stuck in the SEM framework. Can you make that work in a way that that is acceptable to you? Mm, Depends on the question, right? Mm -hmm. Because if it's a univariate outcome, meaning I'm not trying to look at the change in two things together over time, I Mm -hmm. I would just go to the MLM. It's just natural. It's built Mm -hmm. for that. It allows me tests. It allows me to do things that SEM is not able to. Often in a three-level kind of situation, I do have multi-level questions. So I want to disaggregate effects at level one and level two and level three. If there's something that I really want to buy in the SEM model and I'm going to need to take a bullet Mm -hmm. to try to deal with the nesting, They have really nice cluster-corrected standard errors that allows for these higher-order levels of nesting. But in my opinion, those are only effective to the extent to which that nesting is a nuisance that you Mm want to adjust for and pretend doesn't exist. If it's a nuisance and I just want to make it go away, I would stay in the SEM and use clustered SEs. But if I really had a multi-level-like question, I would thank SEM for its service and go back to the MLM. This is a situation we find ourselves in in many different analytical corners of the world, especially when you have a confluence of challenges that you have to deal with. You can often only solve one of them, or you have to pick your battles, right? Or as you say, take that particular bullet. Let me ask you about time. Time is a very bothersome aspect for me. And I know that within the structural equation model, it can be possible to have individual time, although you sacrifice things like fit. Let's imagine that you have some individual times of measurement. What's your go-to to try to accommodate that within a structural equation modeling framework? How do you think about it? This is then moving to the next generation of thinking about this stuff. Pretty much mm-hmm. what we've talked about up to this point is traditional multi-level, traditional SEM. And now on prior episodes, I told the story of my buddy who was the aeronautical engineer and would get drunk and get into these vicious arguments of, was the ice cream sandwich discovered or invented? (laughs) And it's a similar kind of thing is we can Uh start to move to a hybrid-like approach. I don't know if he was the first one to write about this, but in my recollection he was, is there's an amazingly cool, nice, sweet guy named Mike Neal. Mm-hmm. He was at VCU for years, and I think he's still there, mm-hmm. but he developed MX. Yep. He developed what he called definition variables. Forgive me if someone else had their fingerprints on this earlier, but I think about Mike as really the one who, who brought it home and brought it into MX. And what it is, is this kind of funny sleight of hand. And I mean funny like in a creative way. Mm-hmm. In the SEM, what allows us to bring time into the model is we put time in the factor loading matrix and everybody has the 
same factor loading matrix. Now, maybe you were observed at that time point, or maybe not, but that was a missing data problem, right? So imagine we have our factor loading as 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, right? That represents uh, linear growth in six time points. Maybe I have values at 0, 1, and 3, and you at 2, 3, 4, and 5, whatever. But everybody shares the same factor loading matrix. And in the same way that Bill Meredith leaned back and said, that. I don't need a variable in time. I can put it in the factor loading matrix. Mike leaned back and said, well, double that. I can let everybody have their own factor loading matrix. Now this is getting cool. Everybody can have their own factor loading matrix. He called this definition variables. Mm -hmm. And then in the likelihood, you aggregate over these individual factor loading matrices to get the overall likelihood. But no two people need to have the same factor loading matrix that represents time. Well, that is remarkably close to what we just described time Mm -hmm. as a predictor in the MLM. And so Mm -hmm. what Mike did, and it's been absorbed into other software packages as well, but what Mike developed and put into MX was kind of the best of both worlds. You get much of the SEM, not all of the SEM, but much of the SEM, while also allowing for this individual variability in time that's brought in in this factor loading matrix. Two things about that I like. One is that when he said that, He said it with a British accent, which just made it so much cooler, right? So the first time I met him, he's got a British accent. He had long blonde hair. He had wraparound sunglasses and a leather jacket. And I'm like, I can't compete with this. (laughs) He's no no Kai Rizdahl, though, is he? (laughs) Hello, Dr. Michelle. (laughs) Do you have a three o'clock available? Also? (laughs) So yes, the British accent helps. But also, as you sort of allude to, this symbolizes where we're trying to move, right? It's not just MLM should be used for growth, SEM should be used for growth. It's that there are strengths from both of those traditions. And the idea of these two trains that are somehow riding in different directions or whatever, they're really coming together. And I think that this development that you're talking about is one of those things that help to make us no longer have to make these kinds of choices. But in the end, I think with regard to estimators, with regard to dealing with non-normality, with regard to dealing with individualized time points, I think in the end, it all just comes down to one big model. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of the points of confusion and also the occasional points of contention about one over the other are almost becoming more software issues and discipline issues than the actual underlying model. Mike Neal's stuff, he was writing about some of this stuff in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, this is not oh, did you see last issue of Psych Methods? People have been talking about this for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes what I tell my grad students, what I tell my postdocs, what I tell my junior faculty, how you succeed in this field is be selfish. And what I mean is not selfish in throwing elbows and pushing things out of your way to get your way, but be selfish in what do I need to do to meet my needs? My research needs, my professional development needs as being on this grant review panel going to help me in some way is being on this committee going to help me in some way. And this one is be selfish of what are the characteristics of your data? 
What are the characteristics of your research hypothesis? And build that ice cream sandwich that is going to allow you to do what you want to do. And if that's an old school Bryken Rowdenbush three-level MLM, then that's your model. Mm -hmm. If it's a trickery of an SEM, is stupid literal tricks that Mm -hmm. you bring something (laughs) in, then do that. One of my grievances on the holiday one was a software package is not a statistical model. It's a parser and an optimizer. (laughs) Okay, I didn't mean to traumatize you, but yes, (laughs) it is a parser and an offer. (laughs) (laughs) What is the model that is going to answer your question? And then how do you go about evaluating that in whatever way selfishly meets your need? That's where we need to go with this. So I feel that we're kind of converging here, that we're kind of coming together here. There's a lot of other things that we could have mentioned, right? Lots of little details here. A ton. We could get in the weeds. And so if you're on your treadmill, don't say, well, what about this? Or what about that? There are like 20 things down in the weeds, but that undermines the 30,000 foot. Is there certainly little things SEM can do, little things MLM can do, but I think we've touched on the bigger ticket stuff. Mm -hmm. I agree. So in the end, I feel like it is a happy Valentine's Day, Patrick. Oh, Kai. I mean, (laughs) damn it. So we do have a three o'clock appointment with Dr. Michelle. Separate cars. (laughs) There is one more thing. Do you know what day, do you know what date April 17th is? (laughs) Um, March 11th, I think. You're so close. You're so close. April 17th is National Haiku Day. I assumed I assume you actually knew that. I did not. Seriously? Could I just come clean and say I'm not a poetry guy? What are you talking about? Limericks are like that's your that's your people's language. That's not poetry. A limerick is a oh. limerick. <laughs> Oh, okay. I did not know that. What did you say? March 11th? What we... <laughs> April 17th. April 17th. I did not yes. know it was Haiku Day. And I guess maybe more troubling to me, there is a national Haiku Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure why that was necessary. But anyway, so what I was thinking was that we could have people tweet, right, post online or email us some quantitative or statistical or academia-related haikus, and maybe we could put them on the show. Could I pick the low-hanging fruit? Will you let me on this one? Because I already am seeing it. Okay. Haiku. Oh. Quantitative haikus are haiku. Okay. That's just good. I don't know why I didn't see that. All right, I'll give you that one. So haiku. There's some rules, aren't they? I mean, one thing about haiku is they're, aren't they extraordinarily rigid? Haikus, maybe. I don't know about haikus. (laughs) (laughs) We can have some plus or minus. We can have a confidence (laughs) interval around. Remind me what it is. All right. So if I remember correctly... A haiku is a type of short-form poetry originally from <laughs> You're Japan. Wikipedia Traditional again. Japanese haiku consists of... Yeah, all right. As I recall it, <laughs> <laughs> it is 17 syllables total okay. in 575 form. I don't know about the confidence interval, right? So 17 Come on, 17 syllables. plus or minus 5. <laughs> Okay, so give me a quantitative one. I'm going to hold up my fingers and count syllables. Multivariate homoscedasticity often violated. Dude, you already blew. I'm holding up fingers. I got seven on the last line. 
Okay, all right. That was a pathetic first try. Now remember, <laughs> quantitude is a supportive and affirming environment, all right? That was horrible. That was okay. horrible. Okay, no, 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 give me another shot. Give me another shot. Um, all right, here's another attempt. Probe it and loge it, categorically cool forms of regression. No, that seems okay. Why would I take exception to categorically? Categorically. Cate- oh, you're throwing off. That's some weak ass. <laughs> Categorically. <laughs> all right, so you're not buying that, <laughs> that one. That one, jeez. All right, all right. So are we clear on what people need to do? Oh, a date. We need we need to know when. Oh, by when? Um, the last Friday in March. What's is the last Friday in March? My feet are up on my desk, and I'd have to reach for my calendar. Fine. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. The 26th, March 26th. Okay. As we very carefully planned before recording this episode, mm-hmm. March 26th. Yep. We need your high cues. You can email them through the webpage, so you can email them directly to us if you have that. You can post them on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Or DM us on Twitter DM if you want. us on Twitter. Or what we really love is do an audio. You could do a dramatic reading of your haiku as long as you do not pronounce it categorically. <laughs> I, I think I have one more. Can I take one more swing? Okay. I'm right. holding up my hands, buddy. You watch me count. <laughs> I think listeners, this might resonate with them. Patrick grates on me, searching Apple Podcasts now. Ooh, maybe true crime. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Did that work? Ooh is a sound. It's not a <laughs> word. This is going to be fun. Quantitative haiku. March 26th. Send us an audio. We love those. Twitter, email, staple it to a carrier pigeon. We don't care. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Looking forward to it. Take care. Hey, couponers. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they usually go to get stuff to listen to to help break up the Zoom fatigue. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get super fun Quantitude merch on Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access and low-income schools. I just know my wife will love a Jiffy t-shirt for our anniversary. Shh. You've been listening to Quantitude. Trying to augment your stats classes? One long-winded, self-indulgent, questionably relatable anecdote at a time. Today's episode was sponsored by Grouping Variables, who would like you to know that it hurts their feelings every time you call them dummy variables. And by Counterfactuals, which is when you wonder if your remodeled kitchen would have looked better with granite instead of marble surfaces. You see what I did there? And finally, by Actuaries, who think statistics is already so cool that the only thing that could make it even more exciting is to combine it with insurance. This is most definitely not NPR.